Tonight we're going to dive into 1 Corinthians 7, and hopefully we come out of this alive. <laughs> Paul's a Jewish guy. He spent 18 months in Corinth helping plant a church, and he's writing a letter in response to their questions, and we don't know necessarily what their questions are. But uh, he's a single man. It is believed, uh, because he was a Jewish lawyer and a member of a council called the Sanhedrin, that he was married at one point in his life. So either he was a widower, or when he became a radical Christian, his wife abandoned him. He chose that the Lord had gifted him and called him to devote himself entirely to his calling and to be single for the rest of his life. And so he expresses that in this chapter and says he wishes other people were this way because if you get married, there's going to be trouble. (laughs) So I'll just take off sharing and I'll pause every now and then and ask if anybody has input. Those that were here last week kind of got a heads up. Hey, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 next week. Read it and see if you have any insights to share. So we'll begin. He is talking about sexual purity in chapter 6. The sexual union is becoming one with someone. And outside of marriage, obviously it's not the will of God, but you're becoming one with someone with whom you don't have a covenant. And God has called marriage to be a covenant Something that consummates that marriage or ratifies that covenant obviously is a commitment to love for life, but sex is one of the benefits of it. When we as members of the body of Christ go outside of the marriage covenant and do things with our bodies contrary to God's will, we're doing things with the body that belongs to Jesus. I mean, when we became believers, we gave our lives to him to do his will. And so when we become promiscuous, we go outside his will and do things with his body. Our bodies belong to him. Now, when we get married, our body belongs to our spouse, our wife or our husband. So he basically wraps the chapter 6 up with verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. In other words, run away from it. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It was believed by some Greeks, this church was in Greece, that the body wasn't going to heaven, and so you can do whatever you want to with it, and it's not a spiritual thing. It's just a physical thing, so you just sin with your body, it's no problem. When this church originally was a prayer meeting back in 91, well, in 90, there were some people who started coming to that prayer meeting that wanted to bring in a teaching that the people come to the prayer meeting resisted, said, this is not true. And the teaching was, you can sin and it's no problem because it's not really you sinning. It's just your body. So they they said... uh, When we sin with our bodies, it's not really us sinning. Our bodies aren't going to heaven. We are. So you can sin. It's no big deal. Well, I believe God made us spirit, soul, and body, but yet we are one. And while our bodies will be replaced, our spirits and our minds are cooperating with the things we do with our body. Our body just doesn't do things on its own without the involvement in the rest of us. So sin is a problem. It is contrary to the will of God. And we are called to glorify God in our bodies and 
our spirit. So, anyway, needless to say, that didn't get a foothold in the beginnings of this church. Phoenix. Well, first of all, I want to agree with that and say that it says, uh, Jesus said at one time, it says, those who serve him must serve him in spirit and in truth. So, our spirit is tied with our moral flesh, and uh, they say the eyes is the gateway to the soul, and so there is definitely an effect that our physical body has on our spiritual body as well. Um, what I wanted to say about chapter 7 and about, I want to give a Jewish context to okay. what they considered marriage to be. Um, okay. The Jewish concept of marriage at the time was different from our current concept of marriage. Um, what you, you, you said about marriage is completely true in our context today, and that's uh, completely the way that we view it, but the way that they viewed it from the law, from the Old Testament, was that sex was marriage. Um, their, their terms uh, is virgin and married. They, they seem to have two sides of the coin. And uh, this is evidenced um, by Jesus having a conversation at the, with the woman on the well when he asked her, how many husbands do you... Uh, she, he tells her he has... Go get, go get your husband. husband. That Yeah, that you are with now is not your husband. Mm-hmm. And so that idea of sex as marriage is something that's throughout the, the Old Testament. And... Um, they, it, like Rachel, when Rachel was quote unquote married, her marriage ceremony in, consisted of her getting off the horse and going into the tent. Mm-hmm. There, there was no ceremony. It was considered when you have that physical bond, you are committing to that person for life. And that was the Jewish mindset when they looked at marriage. So when you look at the terms in chapter 7 of unmarried and virgin, that's because of that particular mindset that the Jews had. Um, right. So well, I just figured I'd... So the okay. is more the betrothed period as opposed to the sexual union period. They, they considered a betrothal as marriage. Um, that's... that's, that's, uh, that's But there was a sexual union there. Okay. No, not during betrothal. Yeah. Uh, the, the, so that's why I said that would be like the virgin part before... Yeah, and that was the final covenant. Let's keep that in mind, but not be boxed in by that, because this is a Greek church, and the city of Corinth was a very immoral city, so Paul is discipling these people. And verse 1, he says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. We don't know what these letters were they wrote to him, but he begins to teach based on some questions that he received. The first statement is, go ahead. And correct me if I'm wrong, but is it is it not true that First Corinthians is actually the, is the second book, the second letter, and Second Corinthians is the third letter? Paul wrote three letters to the church of Corinth. And the first yeah, he refers. We don't have any more. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So this that, is the first one. That's true. Isn't that that's true. So there's dialogue going. This isn't the first time he's written them, obviously. And this may not even be the second time he's written them. He planted a church and he left him without a pastor. And then later goes back and sets. He does. He did this often. He, later he would go back and establish elders. And I guess in his absence, it became obvious who the leaders were. The survivors. Yeah. And in one of his letters, he says, "I hear there's divisions among you, but I know this is necessary so we can find out who the leaders are." 
And so in times of division, the, the leaders rise to the top. They're the ones that try to try to create unity and bring correction to the disorder. So he begins with a statement, uh, you know, concerning the things which he wrote to me, is good for a man not to touch a woman. All immorality starts with touching. It really does. I would encourage you, if you're not a virgin and you feel you're falling in love with someone, obviously, if you want to get married, you can. But until you get married, refrain from lots of touching. Because, man, electricity flows. It's just good. He said it's good. He didn't say it's a sin to touch a woman. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Because if you don't touch, you... Years ago, I was reading Dear Abby, and some child wrote Dear Abby, Dear Abby, can you get pregnant from French kissing? And Dear Abby responded, No, little darling, but it's a good start. Anyway, so... Um, huh? It complicates things also and fogs your head, whereas... It does. The person... Might not be a good match for you, but yes. When that starts blocking, yes. Yes. yeah. Let me just say right off the bat: there's different kinds of singles. There are people who are widows. There are people who are gifted to be single for life, and there are people that right now are single in their life, and one day they hope to marry. If that is you, I encourage you to include the godly community you are part of in taking baby steps in getting a relationship. In other words, don't marry somebody that none of your friends know. Don't trust yourself to do this on your own. You know, I had a woman argue with me one time. I know what I'm doing. I've been married five times, uh, four times. I don't need any help. There's lots of evidence. Yeah, yeah. So just, uh, yes, that's good. That's good. So um, how do you respond whenever she thinks that because you won't hold her hand, you don't like her? You just read her this verse. <laughs> Say, I like you. That's why I won't hold your hand. Okay. I went to a school, Episcopal Christian College, which is uh-huh. one of the most fundamental schools in all uh-huh. of in the United States of America. Yeah. And they wouldn't let you touch a woman. Yeah. Okay, but there's times where you needed to console somebody. Oh, of course. Of and course. That oh. physical touch is... Yes, absolutely. ...of... Yeah. Understanding towards that right. person and to be able to say, hey, I'm not going to touch a woman. Right. That's yeah. Right. That's it's not, not right. Yeah. 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 That's so don't, balance. Don't that's make that ridiculous. Say, yeah. hey, I'm not ever going to touch a woman. That's not what no. it's no. said. Yeah. Yeah. It's within the context. That's good. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. It, it. Like I said, we don't have the letter or the question that was asked, but it's good wisdom if you are attracted to someone to, to be careful with the touching thing. Uh, If if you're careful with the touching thing, you won't have to be careful with the other things, you know? Anyway. Verse 2, Alan, it says, avoid fornication. Run from it. Yes, yes. (laughs) Nevertheless, because of... run. Yes, you'll run from it. Um, Resist the devil, he'll flee from you, another verse says. But when it comes to sexual temptation, don't wait for it to run from you. You run from it, yeah. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife... And let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Now you pull that out of context, become in balance with it, then we create more weirdness. You know, everybody's got to have their own wife. You know, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time 
that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is not saying a husband can demand sex whenever he wants it. I mean, this is a mutual thing. His body belongs to her and hers to him, and so they've got to work it out as to how they'll express their oneness. Verse 6, but I say this as a concession, but not as a commandment. Now, here's the concession. For I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. What is his gift? His gift, we're going to see, is he's not married. He's single. And this is a gift from God for him. God gave him the ability to do this, but it's also a gift for God because he's able to devote himself fully to the Lord without the distraction of keeping a spouse happy. Verse 8, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, let's use some balance here. Marriage is good. It is. But if you want to get married, and you know you don't have the gift of celibacy, you can pray and God can help you get the strength to get your life in order so that you are marriage material. By being marriage material, I mean you don't have the threat of all your stuff being repossessed by the repo man. No woman's going to want to marry a guy with the threat of that. You've got all your warrants dealt with. and You know what I mean? Your life is in order to the point that someone would want to become a spouse to you. And if that's the case, huh? I said, however, that doesn't seem to be good when it's the woman that has everything in order. And not the man. I've got... The house, you know, everything mm-hmm. in order and what have you. Um, oddly enough, the majority of men my age are living with their parents. Yeah. And um, they seem to, I guess, be more attracted to the chaos of somebody who doesn't have everything in order. Mm-hmm. If a man marries a woman with a life that's chaos or a woman marries a man whose life is chaos, it's going to be chaos. I'll just share a little bit of a teaching on becoming one. When God created the first man and first woman, he said they'll be one. And he told them to multiply. When you multiply one times one, what do you get? One. One. All right. So it's important as singles, if we want to get married, that we become whole persons. That when we get married, it's not out of neediness. If you take that verse to the extreme, everybody who's needy is just going to get married because they're needy. And that's not a good foundation for a marriage. But if one person who's whole marries one person who's whole, they can become one. Because one times one equals what? One. But if a person who only has only has half their life in order marries another person who has half their life in order what do we get half times half equals what four a quarter because you multiply the denominations times you tear each other down to the lowest possible denominator and so if you're burning with passion and you know you need to get married then let that fire that's in you fuel you to get things ready and come talk to your pastor, and we'll we'll help with the search. Well, you know, it doesn't say here in Corinthians, but I mean, I've heard pastors um, 
I've, I've heard this several times since What's I've that? been divorced about, you know, just you pray, the Holy Spirit will lead you to your mate. You know, if you if married, I mean, I, I've heard this this statement that, you know, God has picked out your perfect mate for you. I think there's some balance there. When Isaac got his wife, his father sent somebody to help. So the Lord will help, obviously, but there's faith in works. Verse 10. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. A husband is not to divorce his wife. Boy, America is not abiding by that, are they? But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Biblically, my understanding of the criteria for a divorce is abandonment, which he's talking about here, and fornication. It doesn't mean if fornication has happened, it's all over. And we've seen God do some miraculous healings of relationships. And they become stronger than ever before, but um, not always. So how do you answer the question for, not necessarily me in particular, but for women who are in very abusive relationships? How do you, and, and they won't leave their husbands because they feel convicted to stay, but that could threaten the safety of their, their own self and their children. How do you answer that? For that Call person? the police. Well, clearly. Yeah. But, I mean, what if she still feels compelled to stay because the Bible tells her she has to do that? How do you, I mean, I've never been there, but I know people who've been there. What do you do for them? How do you help them with that? What would God say in that situation? In this situation, it seems as though they say. We don't play with abusive husbands. I mean, we I there's no three strikes and you're out. You're out. Mm-hmm. Call the police. Right. And they get involved. Well, but the police taking her off the hook is one thing, but her feeling like God is keeping her on the hook is another thing altogether. We had one scenario like that here. Police were involved, man wound up in jail, became revealed he had multiple girlfriends, and the beatings were all a result of his own guilt. Mm, okay. Yeah, so. Yeah. Isn't that why she's released? She wouldn't be I'm not saying she's to be beat on. No ways. Right. No ways. No, there's, a room, there's room for separation. Yeah. There is. There is. Room for separation. But how many times have you seen a woman divorce an abusive man, jump right into the same thing? With another abusive yeah. man, see. So, I'm not saying not to leave him, but don't be jumping into the same thing again. Let's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. let's let God sort this out. Yeah. In other words, I view separation as healthy if it's making room for Jesus. Mm-hmm. But if you're cutting off the father of your kids completely mm-hmm. out, you know I don't have the answers for everything, but just what little experience I have here in the 23 years we've been in existence. Uh, we've seen a lot of things happen again and again and oh, again. Yeah. All right, where were we? 
17. 17. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord called each one, so let him walk. And this is going to get tough here. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Now, obviously, that's impossible. Basically, is anyone called while being Jewish? Don't deny your Jewishness. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not become circumcised. There's a whole book in the Bible devoted to that book of Galatians that Paul wrote on Gentiles not having to become Jews for their Christianity. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Now here's, here's a tough thing. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can be made free, rather use it. The opportunity comes to be freedom and you're, you're a slave, go for it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. We're all devoted, no matter where we're in life, to be a light. A light for the Lord. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. In other words, be committed where God called you. There were people in our country... 400, 300, 200 years ago, they defended slavery based upon this verse here. Well, you're a slave, so that's your... There were, but there were the abolitionists who said, no, that's not, that's not true. God has called us to be free and to live according to God's law, not yeah. a slave of man. The, the, that verse is written to the slave, not to the slave owner. Yeah. Just like the verse on a wife submitting to her husband, that's written to the wife, not to the husband. Years ago, I did a, a teaching on marriage, and we preached the whole time on death to self. And everybody got a pamphlet, a, a bulletin, four-page bulletin like this. And the first two pages were verses on death to self, our self-will, our selfishness. The last two pages were verses unique to wives, and then the men got verses that were unique to husbands. And I never preached from those verses. Just, I said, based on what you've heard today, read page three and four. And the reason I did that that Sunday was I noticed when you preach on marriage, when, the, when, you, know, when you hit those verses that the husband's not doing, there's elbows going, and verses that the wives aren't doing, there's elbows going. It's like they're canceling each other out. We're making no progress here. And so, uh, yeah, I'm thinking about doing that, doing that one again and page three and four be verses unique to singles. Because we're all called to die to self anyway. Uh, in, the, in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23 through 33 mm-hmm. that would answer the question for the woman that feels bound even though she's getting beat. the husband's supposed to love his wife mm-hmm. like Christ loved the church well, he took the beating he didn't give the beating exactly. <laughs> and going back to that I, I, I don't know anyone currently I'm a, I'm no there is the battered woman syndrome yeah. we know it we all know it there's about. the battered girlfriend syndrome they're not even married, and they won't leave the guy. Mm-hmm. So if, if his sister was in our church, I would tell her, there's a place to put your foot down and draw a line in the sand, so you're not going to treat me like that again. Mm-hmm. We are going to go get help, and I'm going to tell on you. Okay, verse 25. Now keep in mind what Phoenix, or was it Tom, shared about virgins? 
meaning unmarried people, betrothed. Uh, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord. Yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Now, they, they were living in times of intense persecution. And the Roman Empire was on the rampage. Well, uh, I was thinking, too, that along the lines you're thinking of that maybe it would hinder what you do because instead of just beating on the man, maybe they're going to get his wife and kids. Absolutely. But if you didn't have to worry about them, you would be more bold or more outspoken. Yeah. Yeah, <coughs> So, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, which could have been part of the letters that he had received. That it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. And that word there implies divorce. Are you loose from a wife? Do not seek a wife. All right, if you're divorced, uh, you know, don't be seeking another wife. But even if you do marry... You have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I will spare you. So this trouble in the flesh is twofold. It has to do with the times in which they live. You know, it's just harder to see your wife under the threat of persecution, just you. But also, marriage is tough. Married people often lie to single people and paint a picture. Hollywood lies to single people. Paints a picture that it's all hunky-dory and it's all easy and um, you're just in love from now on. And then we see people getting divorced because, well, I'm just not in love anymore. Meanwhile, love is a commitment for life. And it is tough. It's tough. Becoming one is not easy. And I've been married, by God's grace, 37 years now, I think. 36, 37, coming up on 37. It's not been easy. I mean, we've been to counseling one time for like two years. Um, not been easy. So those who marry will have trouble in the flesh. And I tell single people this, and my wife would tell them this too. It's better to be single wishing you're married than married wishing you're single. <laughs> Pastor, we were, I was having a, a friend and I were having a conversation tonight about Paul and being brought up a, a friend, Paul the Apostle and his mm-hmm. celibate lifestyle and he, he talked about a friend of his that was called to missions but he he caved in to the desire, I've got to be married I've got to be married, I want to be married and so he married mm-hmm. so his whole focus shifted because he he couldn't go to the mission field he couldn't yeah. do what God's call was for yeah. him yeah and then now he's taken on this obligation where he married a woman that did not want to go to the mission field, did not have his same focus. No, no. And so no. I'm thinking, imagine living the rest of your life thinking, oh, did I make a huge mistake? Yeah, yeah. He's going to have to pray and give it to the Lord. We all have parenting instincts. And God has given us those to nurture children. Even if you don't have kids, you've got these instincts. But here's what the enemy wants us to do, is direct those towards our spouse. Oh, yeah, I see faults, but I can help him change. 
or I can help her change. Trust me, you cannot change your spouse. You can make them worse. You can only change yourself. That is your mothering or your fathering instinct talking to you. That is not the voice of God. You can take little Junior and raise him up to be an awesome person, but not your spouse. Because they're grown. They're mama. Their daddy done messed up. Whatever. So, <laughs> so if you see red lights, don't. Many people, when they date, they wear rose-colored glasses, and then when they get married, they put on the magnifying glasses. <laughs> Do the reverse. Wear the magnifying glasses while you pursue or being pursued, and then take them off and put on the rose-colored glasses for the rest of your life. <laughs> Such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. Those who get married are going to have difficulties, and Paul is wanting to spare them those difficulties. Now, as we've implied before, what amplifies his statement is the time in which we lived. It was a time of intense persecution and the risk of life and limb. And getting married just seemed to make you a bigger target and the risk of suffering increased more and more. A single person is a smaller target when it comes to persecution. There's a whole lot less ways that you could be threatened Verse 29, but this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. What I think he's getting at here is we need to have an eternal perspective, knowing that everything in this earthly life is temporary, and our hearts, our hopes, our joys, and our affections need to be set on heaven and on the things of God. With that being said, obviously I don't live like I'm not married, but I value my wife as being more than just being my wife. I value her as being my sister for eternity because in heaven, no one is married or given in marriage, Jesus said. So keeping an eternal perspective on things while we live in a world where things can look bad, look dark, look bleak, look devastating, we won't be as devastated if we realize the story's not over, this too shall pass, and we have a purpose beyond this physical realm. Verse 32, but I want you to be without care or concern or unduly burdened with grief. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. It's just the way it is. When I got married, I wanted to please my wife. Because if mama's not happy, that tells me nobody's happy. Verse 34, there is a difference between a wife and a virgin or an unmarried woman. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. So when you're married, there's two people in union with one another. 
And whatever your roles and expectations are of one another, you have to always live with those in consideration. Maybe the husband wants to be the principal breadwinner and he wants dinner on the table when he gets home. And so the wife endeavors to do that to please him. Whereas if she was single, she could skip meals if she wanted and devote herself to doing something more spiritual. Verse 35, And this I say for your profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is profit, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. So if you want a distraction-free life, and you want to do great things for God, and you're able to live in celibacy and not burn with passion, don't get married. And as a single believer, you are not a second-class citizen. You are a first-class citizen. You're right up there with the other heroes that we all respect and admire and live in light of the blessings that have been passed down to us. Because mighty men and women of God have done great things for him, many of whom were single. Verse 36. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she is past the flower of your youth, thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. Now, there's two interpretations here that I think either one could hold some water. The man behaving improperly toward his virgin could be a man who's close to a woman friend. And he realizes he has strong affections for her. And for them to continue in that friendship, things could risk becoming improper. And so they need to go ahead and get married. There's nothing wrong with that. Or this man could be a father, and his virgin could be his virgin daughter. And if he realizes his behavior towards her is improper, not that it's some incestuous thing, but that she's a grown woman, and she doesn't need her daddy running her life, it's okay for him to bless her to get married. Encourage her to get married, because it's not sinful. It's good. Nevertheless, verse 37, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. Now, this word virgin could also mean virginity, that he chooses to remain a virgin personally. You know, we're not sure exactly the exact application of this particular part, because keep in mind this is written in response to questions that he has received from them in letters. If he wants to keep his virgin, he does well if he has self-control. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, or he who gives up his virginity in marriage does well, but he who does not give in marriage does better. Why is being unmarried better than being married? Because you're, as he said earlier, able to fully devote yourself to Christ and his purposes for your life without distractions. Verse 39, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So what he's saying here, if a widow wants to remarry, she can. But she needs to remarry someone who's following the Lord. Marry a believer. Missionary dating, missionary relationships are not good. 
Often we see people practice something that we call missionary dating, a believer dating an unbeliever, and you need to keep in mind anyone you go out with is a potential mate. And if you get close to an unbeliever, you're going to be tempted to marry them and then later be sorry because of your being unequally yoked. And so widows can remarry, but marry believers. Verse 40, but she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. Now keep in mind, Paul is a pastor loving this church that's a young church that he helped establish in Corinth of Greece. And as a pastor, he's giving his advice, and it's not all necessarily the word of God for every single person. But there are some people who have been graced in such a way to be happier when they are single. And I must say this again, if you're married, wishing you were single, that's pretty unhappy. In fact, that's more unhappy than those who are single wishing they were married. So that's it. First Corinthians chapter 7, Paul's thoughts on marriage, words from God for everyone, and words from God for unique individuals. If you're single and you want to get married, talk to us and we will help work with you and pray. Who knows where it could lead? We've seen God do some amazing things for couples that were brought together with help from friends that cared about them. If you're single, though, and you know you're called to that, we definitely, through this Bible study, want to encourage you to never look down upon yourself and to recognize the opportunities that are yours so that you stop pining for those who um, are not like you and you want to be like them. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the subject called the trap of comparisons. And we all get hit with comparing ourselves to others. And the advertising industry is all about making us compare ourselves to others. So we'll buy products so we can be like everybody else. And I do not think that is God's will for any of us to be unhappy with who he has made us to be. And so I want to pray a prayer and conclude this teaching. Lord, I pray for those who've listened to this podcast. I pray, Lord, that they would be encouraged by these words. And Lord... Bases that were not covered, I pray, Lord, that you would lead them to the answers that are your answers for them. Lord, help us all to apply these verses in a way that makes us more fruitful of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.